Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. And hello again, welcome to another edition of the Real Estate Investing Foundation Podcast. Super excited, it's gonna be a huge episode for you today. Lots of new topics, we welcome Jeremy Roll. Jeremy, how are you? Great, thank you so much for having me, really appreciate it. Well, I'm glad we were able to have you on the show. Jeremy started investing in real estate and businesses in 2002 and left the corporate world in 2007 to become a full-time passive cash flow investor. He is currently an investor in more than 70 opportunities across more than $1 billion. Yes, that was $1 billion worth of real estate and business assets. As founder and president of Roll Investment Group, Jeremy manages a group of over 1,000 investors who seek passive managed cash flow investments in real estate and businesses. Jeremy is also the co-founder for Four Investors by Investors, a nonprofit organization that was launched in 2007 with the goal of facilitating networking and learning among real estate investors in a strict, no-sale pitch environment. Uh, FBI, FIBI is now the largest group of public real estate investor meetings in California with over 27,000 members, which he said is probably over 30,000 members at this point. And Jeremy has an MBA from the Wharton School, a licensed California real estate broker for investing purposes only, of course, and as an advisor for Realty Mogul, the largest real estate crowdfunding website in the U.S. Jeremy, welcome to all of his emails, and we'll get into this at the end at jroll at rollinvestments.com. So, Jeremy, that, that's an awesome background. We really love that. And, you know, you, you go all the way back to, to 2002. Do you remember a point where you were in the corporate world that you just saw an opportunity in real estate or, or just something clicked in you that said, I need to take a different pivot with where I'm going in my life? Yeah. And I would say that even though the passive cash flow has like truly changed my life in amazing ways without trying to sound like an infomercial, um, the reality is that I started down the passive cash flow uh, uh, kind of path just because I was sick and tired of the stock market. So I wasn't like, how can I put this? I didn't have a plan to get out of the corporate world. I didn't say to myself, I'm going to give myself five or 10 years, you know, get that cash flow, get out of the corporate world. I just said, I am sick and tired of the stock market. And the reason why the stock market bothered me was there was a combination of kind of volatility that really bothered me because I'm a low risk, slow and steady guy, as well as lack of predictability. And the lack of predictability was what bothered me the most. But the real catalyst was actually the dot-com crash in the stock market. That's what really, I just said, you know what? I have no idea where my retirement account is going to be in 10, 20, 30 years. I've got to find a better way to invest. And to today, with the passive investing that I do, it's all relatively low risk, passive cash flow focused because it's really all about the predictability for me. That's why I got into this type of path. So when you started investing in 2002, was there, was there a vehicle you jumped on or a certain space that you felt comfortable with at, at first? And if so, what was it? Yeah. So great question. So I got really lucky because um, lifelong friends in my family, I'm originally from Montreal, Canada, and I grew up with uh, all different friends. And, and one set of friends, actually a very good friend of my brother, um, since I've known them since I was five, essentially um, they've been syndicating commercial real estate opportunities, mostly retail and office for decades at that point. And so I started with them and my first investments were actually in Canada, even though I was living in the US and LA. Uh, and the reason why I did that is because I really knew I could trust them. And I also wanted to learn from them. The really big thing was really learning from them, but the trust was absolutely key because I was relatively new to the US, new to LA, didn't know who to trust, didn't know very many people. And so it was really that trust factor in combination with the learning that led me to go down that path and to start that way. So I was really lucky because I had a really good first place to go. That's huge. And so 
you, you find that trust component and lucky that they were in opportunities that, that were something that you could learn and grow from. It, you, you scale this and you get to 2007, you're still within your corporate job, but you say, all right, I've had enough. I'm going to take this full-time Jew. Was there a point that you said, okay, I can make this transition. Sometimes people are trying to figure out that leap and they, they just can't fathom getting out of the job. They, and they're looking for like something to stand out to say, okay, it's time to go. Yeah. So actually I spent years, I mean, years behind the desk in the corporate world, really good jobs. I mean, I worked at Disney headquarters when I first started this, I worked at Toyota headquarters when I finished this, I had other you know, good jobs. And I would always say to myself, I am just not, there's something wrong here. Like I'm not maximizing my potential. I'm one of 10,000 people in this organization that bothered me a lot, but I actually did not um, kind of, like I mentioned, I didn't go down the path of cash flow to get out of the corporate world. I was actually one of the W2, the paycheck and the cash flow, but I wanted the predictability from the cash flow to build up my retirement. And long story short is I had a last strong moment in the corporate world, the new manager that came into headquarters from the field at Toyota. And I just got really fed up in that. I had a new, I kind of moved into a different division at a really challenging situation. And six months later, I just decided to take the risk. Now, what allowed me to take the risk was the cash flow, but being really low risk and really like very careful guy, I did not want to leave until I had uh, both a good amount of padding in terms of how much cash flow I was generating versus cost of living, as well as enough runway. And I actually said to myself, I'm going to give it two years, see what happens. But let me tell you, for someone like me, who was kind of like, you know, raised to climb the corporate ladder, as well as like have an MBA from the Wharton School for that purpose, it was like, I got really fed up, right? Because it was like the last thing I was going to do is take the risk. I'm a pretty low risk guy. So the cash flow really allowed me to do that. And I took that risk and it turned out that the challenge I had with that manager in the corporate world was probably the best thing that ever happened to me in the corporate world. You know, it was one of those like bad situations that you don't realize at the time is like the best thing that's ever happening to you. And really, truly that's what happened for me. Yeah. And that's great, right? You, you think it's the worst thing and it ends up being just the, that pinnacle moment in your life. And that, that's huge. So yeah. You, you've had now, let's say we're, we're 17 or 18 years across this where you, you've, you've invested in so many different spaces and you, you've, you've mentioned low risk a, a number of times. What are, are some of the components of an investment that you look for? Because maybe someone who hasn't maybe even heard of syndication or hasn't thought about investing in a syndication before, they, they may seem think it's risky because I'm giving my money to someone who's you know, doing a real estate something. What, what for you clarifies low risk and how do you delineate between projects? Yeah, the great question. So I think there's two important topics there. Okay. So one is low risk from the profile of the opportunity that doesn't have to be a syndication, but, um, and by the way, there's a thousand ways for people to invest. None of them are wrong. To me, it just comes down to like personality fit and what you're most comfortable with, right? Risk reward and everything else. What I do is I kind of created a, I call a box or set of criteria that I try to follow. So I look for stabilized, let's just use commercial real estate. It's probably my favorite type of asset to invest in. So I look for stabilized properties, which means 80 to 100% occupied, uh, may or may not have any value at upside whatsoever. That's optional to me. And the core of, of, the, um, of the type of profile for me is that I want to go to sleep tonight, wake up tomorrow, and not much has changed, literally, because I live off the cash flow. So I want that predictability. And so that's what I look for, more of a stabilized type property. And I also love diversification. I, as you mentioned, I'm in over 70 different opportunities right now and I kind of am hyper diversified, but that allows me to sleep better just because I'm, as I mentioned, I'm kind of like a nervous guy to begin with. So I like to be low risk. And so same thing with the tenor profile. I love to be in a, in a, let's say for apartments, for example, you know, one, two, 300 unit type building because I love the tenant diversification. If one person leaves today, I'm not going to have a problem going to sleep tonight because it's not going to cause a huge cash flow problem. 
And so that's a type of target profile. I mean, we can get into a lot more detail, but that's what I consider to be relatively low risk. You're not going to get as much upside. It's more about the predictability of the cash flow. Uh, now, that's one component of, of risk. The other was the syndication piece you mentioned. So what I like to tell people, and, and this is my own personal definition. There's, I don't know that it would fall under a textbook definition, but I consider myself passive in that I give control to somebody else and I give it in exchange for the ability to be diversified. So I give up control for diversification. And that's what syndications allow me to do. So for those of you who are not familiar, a syndication is essentially an opportunity where they're pulling a, a number of investors together to invest with each other as passive or limited partner investors where somebody else is managing the opportunity. So they're buying the property, they're gonna run the day-to-day, -day, they've got full control over it. Um, by definition, um, you're giving up control. And even more important is that, you know, you may have a tiny piece of an opportunity you may have 1% vote. That 1% vote or whatever percent vote it's going to be is not going to be majority. You're not going to have much control in that aspect either, aside from the fact that someone else is actually making a day-to-day -day decision so that any vote needed, of course. So you're really giving up control and you've got to have the right personality for that. Not everybody is a good fit for that. And I, you know, when I talk to a lot of new people, the first question I ask them is, what's a better fit for you, active or passive? I don't mean personality-wise even. Now, for me, I started off passive because I was really busy at my job at Disney headquarters. And there was no way I could do something active. I just didn't have the time. I was working really, really hard. So, and I happened to be a good personality match for me, fit for me as well. And so I just went down the path. I continued down the path. Uh, but, but understand though, that when we talk about risk, first of all, there's 20 different ways I could tell you a deal can go bad that you probably couldn't even imagine, right? Um, there's all, I call them all 1% risks. So nothing has any guarantee, of course. Um, the other is that you've got to really get properly diversified because when I invest passively, when I've got control for diversification, I always tell people I look for diversification across asset classes, geographies, and operators, all three. And so if, um, if you're going to go down the passive path, that taking advantage of the diversification is not only part of the benefit, but it's actually key to keeping your list risk as low as possible. But let's be real, though, just to take a step back. If you're giving control up to somebody, there could be fraud, there could be mismanagement, there could be Ponzi schemes, there could be, you know, let alone the 20 other things that can happen that are at their control, these 1% risks. So you've got to diversify out of those to make sure you don't put yourself in a Madoff situation where all your money is with one person, you've got a huge problem. Um, and so it takes time to get properly diversified. That's how you help to reduce the risk as well. So there was a couple of different ways to look at risk and what we're talking about here. You know, and I love that. So we, we talked about, of course, asset type, uh, geography, and operator. So let's take those one step further. What are some of the components of geography that you want to stay away from? Yeah, so there are different aspects of geography to consider. Now, I happen to invest across most major asset classes in residential and commercial real estate and some other stuff, too. So I'm going to give you some quick examples. Sure. So fairly obvious, I live in LA right now. There's earthquake risk, okay? In Florida, there's hurricane risk. Um, there's, uh, in the North Northern States, if you're investing in mobile home parks, there's frozen pipe risk. Um, and so, and, and, you know, each asset class is going to have its own set of risk, even within a geography, let alone by the way that each geography is going to have a different economy, population growth or population exodus, et cetera. So you've got to look at all that surrounding geography. Um, so that's very important on, on the geography side. Um, and I would say kind of like, so part of geography is the actual weather and other things to consider natural, um, what am I thinking of? Uh, not natural events, but I'm forgetting the term. And the other part of geography is the actual local economy. Where are you investing? Is that going to grow over the next 10 years? Has it been growing previously? Population growth, yes or no? Other factors as well. 
Sure. You're talking climate, right? So in the Northeast, yeah. we have a lot of snowfall and, and, you know, maybe in Phoenix, we have a lot of sun that may beat up or Texas, where we, we have a lot of capacity from the heat and other things or maybe soil erosion and, uh, and other points there. Yes. And let me give you a great climate example, actually. So um, in Florida, I've invested in a number of self-storage properties. And the reason why I was totally comfortable with it, despite the hurricanes, is because in, A, the tenants actually have to have their own insurance. It's mandatory. So if there's flooding, that insurance covers their, their goods and items. Number two is that a self-storage uh, property doesn't have too much uh, exposure because there's usually not windows. Um, it's often built to very high standards if it's newer from a wind perspective. And frankly, the biggest concern I usually have when there's a hurricane with the self-storage facility could be the air conditioners, for example, on the roofs or on the ground. Um, so it's going to be minimal damage compared to some other asset class that may have a lot of windows, like an office building, where, um, you know, are you going to want to have that right near the water? You can be inland and there's less risk, right? But you know, you've got to take all these things. I'm not going to worry at all about that, that wind risk, for example, in LA. I'll worry about the earthquake risk. I won't worry about the wind risk in Texas, right? So at least not in the, you know, close to the shore you can, but otherwise. So, you know, you've got to think about it. So it's not just a question of just geography. It's asset class combined with geography. Some of them are okay and others aren't sometimes. Yeah, and that's great points. I appreciate that. And so if we take the next step to the operator, is there red flags from a stance of an operator that you automatically just won't even look at the opportunity no matter how good it is and we'll take that past that what are some things that operators should be doing to make their lps most aligned with the projects okay so let, let's tackle that first point first as far as like yeah will i not invest no matter how good a deal looks so always looking for good opportunities that never ends and so if the if deal is really good i'm going to seriously consider it but now, uh, one thing coming to mind immediately that would make me not go into a really, really fantastic deal is if the investor structure, in, in my opinion, isn't up to market rate or isn't at least the minimums that I look for in terms of preferred return and a profit split. So, I, you know, rarely, but maybe once or twice a year, I see a deal where the profit split is, say, um, below 50-50 for investors, meaning, uh, let's just say hypothetical. Let's say that I saw a really good deal, but the 75% of the profits are going to the sponsor and 25% of the profits are going to the investor. I would just, no matter how good of a, a purchase that was, I would say, look, I don't really think that's fair to me in terms of the returns I'm going to get for the set of risk because you're taking too much of the profit. I'm just going to walk away. It doesn't matter how good a deal it is. Okay. Also preferred return in the way that I invest, because there's many different ways to invest in the markets I invest in. I look for preferred return of about 8% plus. It's not always possible, but that's what I look for. So if I saw either no preferred return or like a 2% preferred return or something, honestly, I just walk. I mean, no matter how good the deal was, because again, what that does is it puts me in a position that even though we're buying it right, which is really important, I don't think I'm getting the right amount of return commensurate with the risk, no matter how good the deal was. So th that's some quick examples. I mean, there's a lot of different things too. You know, if the operator used really aggressive assumptions, and made me worried that like they were being unrealistic and I got to worry about, okay, what does that, how does that translate into other, you know, other things they do, how they operate other things. I would just walk if that just didn't look right. If the operator bought an amazing deal, but didn't analyze the market in it to its full extent, didn't do the right uh, competitive analysis on rents on other properties, et cetera. If they didn't do enough background uh, understanding and checks on the economy and where it's going. Um, and you know, thinking far enough, there's a lot of different reasons why I would walk from a deal even if it was the best deal in the world. Um, so I mean, we can get into more detail if you wanted, you know, I know we have limited time, but those are some examples, for example. So if 
an investor was doing his first syndication. Maybe he's had a good business track record beyond this, but this is his first time doing a syndication, maybe in the multifamily space or self-storage space. Would, would you look at that person not having the track record or, or would there be points that you'd rather them not be, you, you wouldn't want to be the testing plate? Great question. So um, I would consider somebody probably in their third, fourth or fifth time. Now, again, um, you have to take, in my opinion, you need to take into account the previous experience they had as well. If they've never syndicated something themselves, but they worked in a syndication firm for 10 years, there is a lot going on there. I mean, and especially if they had different roles that would make me accelerate saying, okay, maybe on the second or third, or maybe I do the first, depending on who else is there with the team that they're on. Um, if someone is really new, it would take at least several deals. And I, what I would do is if somebody approached me, if they were new, I'd be asked to add, I would ask them to add me to their investor list. I'd watch what they're doing and see what they're buying and eventually circle back with them. I hate to make, I hate to say this and that it's going to sound bad, but it's on the honest truth. And that I just don't like the idea of somebody learning off my money. I'd rather have them learn off someone else's money and then circle back with them when they've had some of that learning baked in from someone else's money that took that risk. Yeah, so that's the way that I approach that. And, and I, I say that only because there's a lot of opportunities out there and everyone's only got a limited amount of capital to invest, including me. So you got to be really picky when you're looking at opportunities. So with so many opportunities out there and just the market dynamics we're seeing today, just where we're due at some point to have some kind of change in, in our direction of the, uh, the market here with multifamily, with other industries that seem to be top heavy. How are you changing your investing perspective or right now or are you not? Yeah, so I actually, I'm really low risk, probably lower than average. And so I changed my investing perspective on this, on the cycle, probably about, uh, well, we're early 2019 recording this right now, probably at the beginning of 2017. So let me actually take a further step back. So I think a lot of passive investors don't think far enough ahead. And what I mean by that is that when I get into a passive deal, I normally investing for 10 years, at least that's projected term. Now, what does that mean? That means that I've got to think 10 years ahead to make sure that I think that this deal today is actually going to do well in the economy in five years, in nine years, and in three years from now. And so as of 2013, I started investing for a downturn. What does that mean? It does not mean that I thought there was going to be a downturn in 2014. What that meant is that I thought there was going to be a downturn in 2018, roughly, which is clearly wrong. And I, so I want to make sure that whatever I'm investing in is going to be good through a downturn at that point as far as its profile. So that's number one. Um, number two is as of about 2017 is when I thought everything was overpriced. Now, what I do, because I can invest in different asset classes, I rotate what I'm investing in depending where we are in the cycle. And what I try to do is I try to stay away from what's hot. And so, um, you know, if some, some asset classes got hot early in the cycle, some of them got hot later in the cycle, probably the last bastion everybody was chasing yield for was mobile home parks. And that was like the last one to get hot. In my opinion, as of 2017, that became really, really overheated and became very, very difficult to find something that made sense. So since then, I've only been investing in deals that I have, like I call unique or have unique pricing. And let's just say 10% or better than market rate pricing to build a little padding into how we buy it. Um, and so I've been sitting on the sidelines, you know, never fully, but for, as a um, philosophy, sitting on the sidelines since 2017 uh, from a average market rate deal as far as investing. And again, I'm just really low risk. So that's the approach I've been taking for the past years. I continue to take that now, waiting for a downturn, uh, very eagerly waiting for an adjustment or a downturn so I can jump back in and really pull force. So this is great, right? So I, I hear people that maybe haven't ever even done a deal before that they're waiting for the downturn to happen. But the response may be that, well, what are the indicators you're looking for to signal that you should jump back in? 
Yeah, great question. So first thing to note is that real estate moves very slowly in terms of pricing. So um, I can tell you in the last cycle, um, you know, probably we didn't get to the trough of pricing for two years after the downturn started. And so you got to be really careful with that. So that's number one. Uh, number two is that because I invest mostly in commercial real estate, I look at the economy because the economy eventually trickles into the, the demand from tenants for that space based on the economy and based on the demand from the, for their business. And so um, if I had to choose one indicator that I thought was probably the best predictor of when we may have a recession, to me, it's the two-year and the 10-year treasury, uh, the yield curve, it's called. Um, and that's been a really, really good predictor about 12 to 18 months out, um, as far, and sometimes 24, as far as when a recession is going to occur. It's not quite inverted yet. It's getting close. So um, I don't think we're going to have a recession for the next year at this point. After that, it becomes a little murky because I'd have to wait and see. I mean, we could have an, uh, an inverted yield curve next month for all I know. So that's the number one thing I'm looking at. Um, in the meantime, I'm just trying to be patient. And by the way, I should also be clear that every asset class is different. And so I'm just going to give you some generalizations because it's also based on, you know, quality of asset, location, everything else. But self-storage probably peaked in pricing, you know, about two years ago. And there's been a slight adjustment, uh, at least what I've seen, a slight adjustment as far as like the bid, the bid spread ask that kind of narrowed. And so pricing has gotten maybe 50 basis points better or something like that. Um, mobile home parks appear to have peaked probably last year. I don't know what's going to happen with them this year, but they're very, very expensive. Uh, apartments, I think, are quite, probably at peak. There's still a lot of demand for them, but I'm afraid it's peaked myself. Um, retail strip centers, though, probably peaked in 2015, 16. And since, because of uh, online and all the media associated with that, and frankly, all the store closings, they've actually gotten cheaper. So not everything moves right in tandem with the economy, but as a high-level generalization, it's a good way to look at it. No, that's great too, right? And just like you said, you know, city to city, market to market, they're all going to be at different points of the cycle regardless of just asset classes across give, give you that barrier to go for. Yes. So looking at your business today, what, what are you working to improve on? Well, um, the hardest part of my day is always finding opportunities. And that's particularly hard today because of the fact that I think most things are overpriced as an opinion. And so the biggest challenge I have in 2019 is that uh, just to give you an idea, so in 2017 and 18, I was involved in a total, I think, of 24 sales, okay, because I'm in a lot of different things. I'll probably be in another five or 10 sales this year based on what I'm projecting. The problem I have is that my cash flow will probably be lower, passive cash flow, by the end of the year than the beginning of the year because more things are going to sell and I can't reinvest the money as quickly. And so the number one thing for me right now is trying to find opportunities that still make sense. That's definitely the hardest part of my day. I mean, it's always the hardest part of my day, but it's particularly difficult to do that now. Um, and so, and frankly, I've, I've also kind of got to go into it knowing though that um, I've got to be very careful nonetheless, because I assume the average deal right now just doesn't make any sense going into it. I know it sounds very pessimistic, but it's, I consider it realistic just based on objective numbers. So um, even though I'm kind of like having an even harder time finding opportunities, I'm also making sure that I'm restrained and that I'm not just going to jump into something because it looks half good. It's got to look fully good or it just, I just won't do it. So that's definitely the thing that I'm focused on right now. Um, and just waiting uh, for the downturn. So I'm going to ask you kind of a great question because someone mentioned this to me the other day. They, they choose to invest in smaller syndications on smaller properties because they, they figure less risk you know, investing across a 50-unit um, that's a $2 million property in, in lieu of investing in a 250-unit that's uh, you know, a three, um, $30 million opportunity. Does any of that factor into your day that you, you'd choose to stay away from a smaller opportunity or a larger opportunity because of the risk profile? 
I personally have certain parameters that I try to hit as far as size of property. And I'm talking about tenant diversification um, just to make sure that I feel like it's diversified enough. So for example, I, I start to get uncomfortable when apartment buildings under hundred units and, and there's no like formula for it. It's just my personal comfort level. Uh, I start to get uncomfortable with a mobile home park that's under 75 units and I prefer over hundred. I start to get uncomfortable with a self-storage facility that's under 300 units and frankly, I prefer over 800, but that's where, you know, my comfort level really under 300 starts to hit. I get uncomfortable with a retail strip center under 10, preferably have 13 or more. And, and you know, these are, I know these are kind of very specific numbers, but they're also just based on gut feel, based on a lot of looking at a lot of deals over the years, right? There's no scientific number. It's actually a comfort level thing, but definitely the, the quick answer to your question is, I always look for a certain amount of tenant diversification, uh, depending on the specific asset class, where I just won't get comfortable enough with it, just because of the fact that I try to reduce that risk from diversification. I'm sure it helps you with looking at so many opportunities, right? If you if you were to look at every single mobile home park opportunity that came over there, you would just you would never get to look through all the opportunities. Because but if you cut it off and say 80 pads or 75 pads, anything underneath, I'm not going to look at. At least that makes it a little more clear on your criteria. Yeah, well, the other thing too, when you start looking criteria, I mean, I look for normally a class B asset. So not an A and not a C asset. So right away I can weed out, whether it's mobile home parks or whatever it is, I can weed out a lot of stuff. Um, and that helps too. Uh, between uh, the type of asset I'm looking for, the size of asset, um, and then um, very quickly looking at some of the assumptions, the return structure for investors, like in terms of the profit splits and preferred return. And probably the easiest thing to weed out of right now is that the purchase price based off of the cap rate of the multiple that's being paid. That multiple is probably the number one thing I look at immediately that forget everything else. But if the multiple to me is too high, they're paying too much of a multiple, then I'll just walk away right now without even a question. Love it. And looking at that, you only choose B class. A few quick points why you don't want to do C and why you don't want to do A. Sure. So, um, well, it'll depend on the asset class. So, for example, in mobile home parks, there's a lot of good reasons not to do it. It's actually in star ratings, typically. So I'll do like a three or four star park, but I won't do two star, one star, and I won't do five star. Um, but that's, that's a little bit different. Um, overall, I like the idea that a class B property caters to the general population as far as what they can afford. I'm making a generalization. Each, each asset class is different. Um, I like, I, I, I often, like in apartments, for example, a class C apartment is much harder to manage and also has less predictable cash flow a little bit than a class B, arguably, because you may have uh, a little more turnover of tenants, people may not, quite, quite, may not quite pay on time, there may be other uh, challenges, so I tend to stay away from that because of predictability. Class A, it always worries me that sometimes class A can have a lot of demand during uh, a nice upturn in an economy, but as soon as we have the downturn, people could trade down. So apartments are a great example where they can't afford the class A apartment anymore, they're gonna trade down to B, but going from B to C is harder, not only because B is more affordable, but because C is just not going to have, it's, a, it's like, it's conforming to lower end of population, not necessarily like average was what I would call it. So I just go for like average where I feel like at least average is going to hold through recession. It's going to hold through. And this is a course, again, I'm generalizing, depends on the asset class sure. to give you an idea. And also there's less challenges often with B than C in terms of collecting rents and more predictability. So if I was to tell you, you could only go forward and invest in one asset class going forward, what would it be? Uh, how, how long a time period? You mean for the rest of my life? Rest of your life, you get one. All right. Well, so my head immediately goes to mobile home parks because there's a very low amount of turnover and therefore a higher degree of predictability and cash flow. Okay. Um, and um, it, there's always going to be demand for low income housing. 
right? Uh, now it's going to depend on the profile of the park and everything. The Morning Weezer, I'm not sure about my answer for that is because mobile home parks tend to get bought up and kind of like in the path of progress, they're turned in housing developments and everything else. So I'm not sure that that mobile home park will be there in 30 years. So if we take, take that and say, okay, well, that kind of pulls it out of the running. The next thing I would probably say is apartments, because to me, um, regardless of whether we have self-driving cars, robots, um, flying cars, and the rest of it, people are going to have to have a place to live. And apartments to me are always going to have demand. It's got to be in the right place. It's got to be purchased at the right price in the right part of the cycle. But um, I would definitely say that if it's can't be mobile home parks with the lack of certainty about whether it will exist in 30, 40 years, apartments would be the number one thing I'd say. I think it's going to exist. Rents, you know, in the right market, rents tend to be pretty stable. You're not going to get a huge run up, but you're also not going to get a huge run down in the wrong economy. Uh, and so, you know, I could just see decade in, decade out apartments being demanded. Awesome. This has been super insightful. Thank you so much for this. If there's an investor listening right now that is, where I'd say they're looking to start investing, what would be some of the steps they can take just to take that first action step, get off the couch and get moving? Yeah, sure. So, um, are you referring to someone who's looking to go passive or active? Oh, passive. I think that would be good. Maybe, maybe they are very busy in their job and now okay. they want to get into real estate, but it just seems like a, such a big ocean that they don't know where to start. Sure. And can, can we assume they're a credit investor? Is that a fair assumption? Fair okay. Assumption. So credit and passive investors starting from scratch. Um, two things that I would say they, they probably would want to focus on. Number one is networking. Uh, most of the opportunities I invest in even today are not allowed to be publicly uh, marketed. The hardest, one of the hardest parts of my day is doing enough networking to find the opportunities and the operators. So that's number one. You're going to want to go to some networking events. You're going to want to network online, like bigger pockets and other very large communities. So that's number one. Number two is if you're starting from scratch, you don't even know much about any asset class. I would strongly recommend you get opportunity exposure. That's how I learned, which means that you're going to want to download a whole bunch of opportunities and learn from them and see how they're the same or different to start learning how they can be different from each other. So um, one good way to do that that's extremely efficient that I couldn't do when I started was uh, crowdfunding sites. I'm not saying you should be investing on crowdfunding sites necessarily. They may or may not be the right fit for you. But if you want to log on in your pajamas and download, you, you want to say, look, I want to learn about apartments. How do I learn about that? Go on to five crowdfunding sites, download 15 apartment deals that are all very similar in profile. Compare them all. Read them all. Understand how the business plans are similar, different across them. The assumptions can be similar or different across them. Even the investor returns, structures, et cetera. Just compare them all and you can really focus on one asset class and learn it quite quickly. And the great thing is, is that once you learn one asset class of a, as a passive investor, typically a lot of it is transferable across all the asset classes. Like all of them are going to have revenues and expenses. They're going to be a little different and different things to consider. All of them are going to have net or operating income at the bottom line. And you have to understand how you derive to that. All of them are going to have a certain amount of debt and how does that debt payment and that debt coverage ratio affect whether or not you want to invest. They're all going to be similar like that. All of them are going to have assumptions in revenue and expense increases each year, depending on the item. So, and all of them are going to have an assumption of a multiple of an exit value in the end. So um, once you learn one asset class, you'd be surprised to, to know that you can transfer a lot of that information across all of them, although you're going to have to tweak it all to match the exact right asset class. So that's the first two steps I'd recommend for sure, doing a lot of networking and learning um, at some of the networking events, as well as doing downloading on the crowdfunding sites to be able to actually get opportunity exposure. Awesome points. We haven't heard the crowdfunding site before. We love that. So that's a great topic right there for someone that really just wants to see a little bit more about, you know, behind the curtain. Of what am I actually getting involved in? Great yes. Topic. I just, I want to just make something clear though, with the very important of the crowdfunding site. A lot of them are really, really good tools uh, and good places to go. And you may find that's actually a great solution for you to find opportunities at the same time. 
please know that a lot of crowdfunding sites are essentially middlemen. They're finding opportunities, they're vetting them, they're sending them to their investors to, and then they're, they're managing the managers after that, they're pulling all the investors into the LLC. By definition, because of that, their business models are taking certain management fees sometimes, sometimes a portion of the, of the profits from investors for doing all this and finding the opportunity, vetting it, et cetera. So when you're looking at these crowdfunding site opportunities, just know that if you were investing directly with the sponsor instead of through the middleman, the crowdfunding site, the returns will likely, lead, likely be, in most cases, a little bit higher. So don't gauge the returns necessarily on the crowdfunding sites to be exactly what you should expect finding a sponsor directly. Everything else should be very similar, but just keep in mind that the returns may be better and should be better in most cases if you go directly sponsor, but there's a trade-off because you got to go find that sponsor and network to find them. So that's a decision you'll have to make, you know, but I want to make sure everybody knows the returns um, will, can be different and should be different in most cases going direct to the sponsor. Awesome points. Thank you for that. And for listeners, what's the best way to find out more about you and uh, connect? Sure. Yeah. The best way to reach me, I'm happy to help anybody any way that I can. I'm happy to network with other new investors or experienced investors or operators or whatnot. Um, so my, um, my email address is the best way to reach me. So it's jroll, which is J-R-O-L-L at roll investments, which is R-O-L-L investments with an S.com. So jroll at rollinvestments.com. Jeremy, super incredible. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Oh, no problem. Thanks so much for having me. Hopefully this has been helpful for some of the listeners. Sure has. And a huge thank you to Jeremy Roll. And thank you to everyone listening out there. This is Jason with the Real Estate Investing Foundation podcast. Happy Wednesday. We'll talk to you shortly. Bye now. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.